This episode features discussions of suicide, murder, and terrorism that some people may find disturbing. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. On Sunday, January 18, 2015, a journalist for the Buenos Aires Herald named Damien Patchter tweeted about the sudden death of Argentine prosecutor Alberto Nisman. The tweet, which we've translated into English, read, Alberto Nisman has been found in the bathroom of his home in Puerto Madero, laying in a pool of blood. He was not breathing. The doctors are there. Over the next four days, Patchter didn't get much sleep. He received hundreds of messages from friends, co-workers, and fellow reporters. Some asked for more information on the breaking news, calling it the best story in decades. Others warned him not to dig any deeper, fearing for his safety. On Friday, January 23rd, a BBC journalist sent Patchter an article published by Talam, Argentina's state-run news agency. The story included an edited version of Patchter's earlier tweet. For some reason, the government removed any mention of blood. Worry crept up inside the journalist. In his mind, there was only one reason why Talam would want to control the narrative of Nisman's death. They were somehow involved. He sent the article to a friend to make sure he wasn't overreacting. But their response only validated his paranoia. They wrote, Get out now. You have to leave the city. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second and final episode on Alberto Nisman, an Argentine federal prosecutor found dead in his apartment in January 2015. Last episode, we discussed Niesman's decades-long investigation into the 1994 Amia bombing, a terrorist attack targeting the Jewish population of Buenos Aires. We then examined the mysterious circumstances of his death, which occurred hours before a court appearance where he was set to reveal potentially explosive details about an alleged cover-up between the Argentinian government and Iran. Though initially deemed a suicide, in 2018, the federal court of Buenos Aires officially ruled his death a homicide. This time, we'll examine possible murder suspects ranging from a possible ex-lover to a rogue intelligence agent to assassins dispatched by the then-president of Argentina, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. After nearly two decades investigating the 1994 AMIA bombing, the deadliest terrorist attack in Latin American history, Alberto Nisman handed a 289-page document to a judge on January 14, 2015. Though not a formal indictment, the filing accused Argentinian President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner and Foreign Minister Hector Timerman of, quote, being authors and accomplices of an aggravated cover-up and obstruction of justice regarding the Iranians accused of the AMIA terrorist attack. Nisman never made the alleged motive behind the cover-up clear. However, he implied President Fernandez's administration planned to exonerate the Iranians responsible for the attack. In exchange, Iran would supposedly offer financial support and political leverage involving high-level trade and nuclear deals. As for whether there was any validity to these claims, it's difficult to say. Four days after filing his complaint, officials found Nisman dead in the bathroom of his Puerto Madero apartment. Among the many oddities of the crime scene, someone had deleted nearly 500 messages from Nisman's personal devices. Though initially ruled a suicide, accusations of a mishandled investigation led investigators to re-examine his death. And in 2018, the federal court of Buenos Aires ruled it a homicide. Nisman's killer has never been identified, but the list of potential suspects is long. And arguably the most popular currently serves as Argentina's vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Some suspect Fernandez ordered a hit on Nisman as retaliation for his investigation into her administration's alleged misdeeds. The timing certainly appeared suspicious. Nisman had just accused her of an international cover-up and asked to launch a formal investigation that could expose potentially damning information. And at the time, Fernandez was no stranger to scandals. In 2007, two months before she was elected president, the United States reportedly intercepted a suitcase filled with $800,000 cash. They claimed the money had been sent by Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez using unregistered government agents to funnel funds to Fernandez's campaign. Two Venezuelan men pled guilty to acting as conspirators and were convicted. But Fernandez was never charged. Her involvement and knowledge of the crimes remains unknown. Two years later, Fernandez tried passing a law to break up several major news outlets, including Clarín Media Group, the largest in Argentina. The edict would compel Clarín to divest their cable operations, essentially forcing many Argentines to rely on state-run networks for their news. Fernandez claimed it was an effort to decentralize the media to allow for a greater plurality of perspectives, something many politicians agreed needed to happen at the time. 
But Clarín's editor-in-chief, Hector Magneto, suspected the president had ulterior motives for her support. To him, the law felt like revenge. Clarín had critically covered the 2007 suitcase scandal and Fernández's possible involvement. Ultimately, the bill never passed. But Magneto went so far as to suggest Fernandez wanted to manipulate the media in order to secure another term for her presidency. Supposedly, it worked. Re-elected in 2011, Fernandez continued to find herself in the center of numerous scandals, ranging from conspiracy to fraud to obstruction of justice to corruption. However, she managed to frame them all as an ongoing political witch hunt, and her status as an elected official prevented her from being prosecuted for any alleged crimes. In 2014, Fernandez fired three top intelligence officials, including Jaime Stuso, who had been helping Nisman secretly investigate her administration. As we mentioned last time, some suspected she'd caught wind of their collaboration and wanted to stop it in its tracks. Then, in January 2015, at the tail end of her second term, days after accusing Fernandez's administration of an international cover-up and obstructing justice, Alberto Nisman was found dead, lying in a pool of his own blood. As we mentioned last time, hours after news broke, Argentines staged demonstrations outside President Fernandez's offices, holding signs that read, I am Nisman. At Nisman's funeral, hundreds of Jewish Argentines gathered to mourn his passing. A eulogy mentioned that Nisman's passing had revealed, quote, the inner workings of Argentine political power, end quote. Many attendees held messages like, no more corruption and impunity. A nationwide poll reportedly found that 70% of Argentines insisted he'd been murdered. And 50% of Argentines suspected the government had been involved. In the wake of this criticism and outcry, posters appeared around Buenos Aires attacking Nisman's character. They portrayed Nisman as an elitist who'd used government funds to woo women and support his bombastic lifestyle. The message seemed to be Nisman wasn't a man who deserved to be mourned. Many suspected the posters were created by a propaganda machine, allegedly run by Fernandez's party, which the press has nicknamed Relato K. To be clear, aside from speculation, there's no direct proof that can verify whether or not Fernandez's administration had any ties to these posters. That said, it's relatively easy to draw a line between Fernandez's administration and state-run news outlets like Telam. And the manner in which Nisman was represented by these outlets was strikingly similar to the posters. Talam also happened to run the website that edited journalist Damien Patchter's tweet about the manner of Nisman's death. Patchter suspected the Argentinian government had criminal reasons for wanting to control the narrative surrounding Nisman's death. Allegedly not wanting to end up like Nisman, he fled to Tel Aviv, Israel. And on his way out of Buenos Aires, he believed he was followed by an Argentinian intelligence agent. As of this recording, he hasn't returned to Argentina, and he maintains that leaving the country with haste saved his life. 
Now, we can corroborate that Talam edited Patchter's initial reporting, an action that was undoubtedly intentional. But it's nearly impossible to actually link Fernandez or her administration to any media spin, which could mean the evidence doesn't exist or it hasn't been made public. But to find out how Fernandez personally reacted to Niesman's death, we don't have to dig too deep. We can simply examine her own words in the aftermath. Fernandez initially made a public statement endorsing the ruling that the prosecutor died by suicide, but she later walked back her sentiments. On her website, she wrote an article titled, The Suicide That I Am Convinced Was Not Suicide. In it, she said she now believed Niesman had been assassinated in an elaborate plot to discredit her suggesting the killer anticipated the Argentinian public would suspect her of orchestrating the crime. A few months later, in an interview for The New Yorker, Fernandez even implied that she, of all people, had suffered the most from the prosecutor's passing, failing to even mention his family or two young daughters. After meeting with Fernandez, Dexter Filkins, the reporter who conducted the interview, wrote... Even after declaring Niesman's death a murder, Fernandez allowed no sympathy for him. At a press conference, she suggested that he and Lago Marcino were lovers. It appeared the president wasn't above smearing the dead with potentially damning personal allegations, so long as it meant shifting suspicions elsewhere. And it worked. Suspect number two stepped into the spotlight. Alberto Niesman's computer technician and assistant, Diego Lagomarsino. Coming up, we'll examine two suspects, both friends of Alberto Niesman. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. And now back to the story. On January 18th, 2015, Argentinian federal prosecutor Alberto Niesman died alone in his apartment. While investigators originally ruled his death a suicide, later examinations suggested he'd been murdered. Almost immediately, half the country suspected that President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner's administration was involved in Niesman's death. Upset by the allegations, the president became increasingly defensive, vehemently denying all culpability, and occasionally going on the offensive. Weeks after Niesman's death, frustrated by public skepticism and criticism, Fernandez held a press conference where she implied Alberto Niesman may have had a secret lover, a man named Diego Lagomarsino. Afterward, other members of the president's inner circle took the allegations a step further. They suggested Diego may have murdered Niesman during a lover's quarrel. Now, you'll remember from last time, Diego worked for Niesman as a computer technician and assistant. 
He was originally hired to help organize digital files on the 1994 Amia bombing case, amassed during Nisman's 20-plus years investigating the terror attack. But over time, Diego's duties expanded to include running personal errands and general assistance. Nisman undoubtedly placed a lot of trust in him. In fact, Diego was reportedly one of the few people Nisman told about his secret investigation into the Fernandez administration's alleged corruption. But Diego refuted the claim. And no evidence has ever come out that implies Diego and Nisman were anything more than friends and co-workers. At least, not that we've found. In fact, the suggestions seemingly contradicted Niesman's reputation as a playboy who frequently had casual affairs with women. The same image put forth by propaganda posters and the state-run media. But regardless of any romantic entanglement, investigators still considered Diego a worthy suspect. After all, he owned the murder weapon. As we mentioned last time, Diego openly admitted that the gun and bullet that killed Alberto Nisman were his. According to the technician, the night before the murder, Nisman asked to borrow the 22 caliber pistol. Diego obliged and even showed the prosecutor how to properly load it. But Diego stated Nisman only wanted the gun for protection. After making such explosive accusations against the current administration, he feared for his safety and his families. Now, there are no witnesses to the conversation, and it seems odd that Niesman would be so interested in protecting his family when they were away in Europe celebrating a birthday at the time. But other friends have corroborated Diego's claims that Niesman was both paranoid and legitimately afraid. And he had reason to be worried. Evidence reportedly showed that Niesman received a number of messages threatening him and his family, allegedly for his work investigating the Amia case and Fernandez's administration. It's unclear who sent these warnings, because they came from anonymous accounts using digital aliases. Many have suggested they were sent by members of Fernandez's inner circle. And these were the messages still left on Niesman's computer. As we mentioned, someone deleted nearly 500 other messages from his devices before police discovered his body. Whoever erased the data didn't delete what appeared to be a seemingly harmless PDF on Niesman's phone. But investigators found that the file contained spyware that allowed a third party to monitor all the activity on the device. Experts analyzed the program and learned it had been created on December 1st, 2014, approximately six weeks before Alberto Niesman was murdered. They also determined the program was more than a garden-variety virus. It was a highly targeted social engineering campaign. Unfortunately, investigators haven't been able to identify the hacker. After changing domains, they became virtually untraceable. But it is odd that someone deleted so many threatening messages. And Diego did have access to Niesman's devices. In 2017, a judge indicted Diego on charges that he was a necessary accessory in the homicide. The decision likely came as a shock to the assistant, but his shock was only compounded by circumstance. 
Diego found out about the indictment on air during a live television interview. As a result of the indictment, he was forced to wear an ankle bracelet, remain in the country, and never leave his home for more than 24 hours at a time. Now, Diego has never been convicted of any crimes, and his testimony has been consistent throughout the investigation, always cooperating with police. The same can't be said for all of Niesman's friends. Days after Niesman was murdered, former Argentinian intelligence agent Jaime Stiuso, who'd worked with Niesman in multiple investigations, fled the country without any warning, which left officials wondering, what was he trying to hide? Even before Niesman's death, Stiuso was notoriously secretive. He started working for an intelligence agency called Secretariat of Intelligence, or SIDE, in the 1970s at just 18 years old. Over the next four decades, he collaborated with Israel's intelligence agency, Mossad, and the United States CIA and FBI. Oddly, even as Tioso rose through the ranks, eventually becoming the chief of operations at SIDE, he only ever allowed the media to publish one photo of his face, and it was blurry. And his likeness isn't the only detail Stiuso kept under wraps. Many of his colleagues didn't even know his real name. Throughout this episode and the last, we've referred to him as Jaime Stiuso, his public alias. But his legal name is Antonio Stiuso. These quirks are odd, but ultimately harmless. What made Stu so notorious were the accusations of money laundering and bribery. Though an accomplished spy, Stuso's mindset was that he ultimately worked for himself. Often his personal motives aligned with his intelligence work. Throughout his career, he was unflinchingly loyal to the president, any president. He didn't care about party or politics. His job as side director was to serve whatever administration was in power, and he took his duties seriously. In an interview with the Argentinian paper Noticias, he mused, I worked for all democratic presidents. For me, they're all the same. Go find a president who has complained about me. But we know his attitude changed around the time Argentina allegedly made a trade deal with Iran that would affect the investigation into the 1994 Amia bombing. Apparently, Stiuso considered this the last straw. His allegiance wavered, and he began providing high-level intelligence to Alberto Nisman that implicated President Fernandez in the backdoor scheme. We should note this was before Stiuso lost his job, which means his relationship with Fernandez was already sour by the time she removed him from office. Stiuso's bitterness might have motivated him to work against Fernandez, but it couldn't make evidence appear out of thin air. Even though Stiuso and Nisman compiled nearly 300 pages on the alleged Amia cover-up conspiracy, a lot of it was circumstantial. In fact, Fernandez has publicly alleged that all the intelligence Stiuso compiled was false or fabricated. Real or not, Niesman's case may not have been strong enough to actually convict Fernandez. So, allegedly, Stiuso decided to ensure her downfall by framing her for Alberto Niesman's murder. 
Last time, we covered some of the more suspicious details about Nisman's death and autopsy. Supposedly, all these details were designed to raise eyebrows. It was supposed to be obvious to everyone that Nisman had been killed, and the public at large was meant to assume that President Fernandez was behind it. But we didn't mention the phone records that showed nearly nonstop calls between retired intelligence officers, the military, and side from 8 a.m. to 10.30 p.m. on the day Nisman was murdered. That's more than 14 hours of continuous communication on a single Sunday. This wasn't routine. Special Prosecutor Viviana Fain reviewed other call logs and couldn't find any other days where those individuals spoke nearly so much. Not even work days. Which suggested Side and the military knew Niesman was going to die even before his body was found. Stiuso could have fled the country because he possibly had information on the identity of the killer or killers. Or, as President Fernandez claimed, Stiuso might have orchestrated the hit. This contradicted the narrative that Stiuso and Nisman were friendly and working together to investigate Fernandez's corruption. But the president claimed Stiuso might have blamed Nisman for giving him what she called the false information that ultimately led to his removal from office. Although he'd been ousted from his side position three months prior, the former director probably still had contacts within the agency. Vice reporter Gaston Cavanaugh called Stiuso one of the most feared figures in Argentina. That kind of power and influence doesn't go away just because you lose your job. So maybe Nisman's murder was an inside job orchestrated by one of Argentina's most powerful intelligence agencies, Side. Coming up, we'll discuss Side's controversial past and examine evidence they killed Niesman. And now back to the story. On January 18, 2015, prosecutor Alberto Niesman was murdered in his apartment in the Puerto Madero neighborhood of Buenos Aires, Argentina. Niesman had recently accused Argentinian president Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner of collaborating with terrorists. As a result, her administration was under immense pressure to prove their innocence. Had this been any other homicide investigation, Fernandez would have dispatched side to gather information. But their findings in this case might not have gone over well because allegations of corruption have plagued the agency since it was formed. In 1946, Side was called the Information Division, and their primary purpose was to help Nazi war criminals escape prosecution and resettle in Argentina. Three decades later, the group fell under military control and helped government officials suppress dissent. They investigated, harassed, and intimidated student activists, whistleblowers, and union organizers. In recent years, SIDE has undergone numerous rebrands and name changes, but the scandals and corruption allegations haven't stopped. Most recently, in the summer of 2020, leaked documents implied the agency was illegally surveilling more than 400 journalists, including tracking their social media posts to try to infer their political leanings. 
It's unsurprising that Side has been able to so blatantly break the law and get away with it. Historically, the agency has had virtually no formal oversight. The parliamentary group meant to manage them essentially went defunct about a year before Nisman's death. Which means there was nobody to keep them in check. One politician, Justice Minister Gustavo Bellis, alleged that its agents operated like, quote, a kind of Gestapo. Which may be why President Fernandez was so quick to implicate Side in Nisman's murder. Given their history, murder likely wouldn't have seemed that much of a stretch. And Fernandez didn't just accuse Side of committing murder. In January 2015, mere weeks after Nisman's murder, she announced she planned to dismantle the agency. Later that year, legislators followed her lead and voted to get rid of Side in favor of a new organization that reported and answered directly to Congress. But they also opened the floodgates to allow Fernandez to pack it with loyalists and allies. Of course, this doesn't mean everyone believed Fernandez's assertions that Side had killed Niesman. After all, she wasn't exactly an unbiased source of intel. Some Congress members argued disbanding Side was a ruse to distract from the president's own complicity. It was odd that she campaigned so hard against Side, especially since the man who'd allegedly ordered the hit... Jaime Stiuso wasn't officially affiliated with them anymore. In fact, he wasn't even in the country anymore. Weeks after Nisman's death, investigators summoned Stiuso for questioning. But Stiuso didn't respond. Later, officials learned he'd boarded an airplane in Brazil and flown to Miami. But they had no way of knowing whether he was staying in the United States or if he'd transferred to another flight. Really? Stuso could have been anywhere in the world. Which did make him look guilty. Many wondered why, if Stiuso didn't have anything to do with the murder, he would be afraid to talk to investigators. Unless, of course, like journalist Damien Patchter, he was worried about his own safety. And as it turned out, that's exactly what Stiuso later alleged when he finally reappeared. Reportedly, He'd received multiple death threats from Argentinian government officials. And the president didn't do much to assuage his fears. Months after Nisman's death, Fernandez appealed to the UN to demand that the United States extradite Stiuso. Remember, she didn't have any evidence Stiuso was even in the U.S. at the time. But that didn't stop her from suggesting that the Obama administration knew Stiuso was within their borders and was lying about it for some reason. She also argued that Interpol and the United States were protecting Stiuso, but she wouldn't clarify what he needed protection from. Her appeals didn't make much headway, at least not officially. But a year later, in 2016, Stiuso publicly confirmed that he was living in the United States. And soon afterward, he voluntarily returned from his self-imposed exile. He was finally ready to share everything he knew regarding Nisman's death. Over 17 hours of courtroom testimony in Buenos Aires, Stiuso spilled his guts. His testimony has never been released to the public, 
but a few choice excerpts made their way to the media. He said, quote, The author of all this madness was that woman, Christina Fernandez de Kirchner. But another quote suggested that assassins working for the Iranian government might have eliminated Nisman. Without more context, it's hard to infer what exactly Stiuso believed. Maybe he thought that Fernandez and the Iranians had conspired together. Or perhaps he was throwing out misinformation to serve some other mysterious purpose. Since we can't review his testimony in detail, it's hard to make any kind of ruling about how much Stiuso knew about Nisman's murder, or if he was involved. There are plenty of other questions that still haven't been answered, especially regarding the many phone calls side agents placed the night Nisman died, and how much the United States really knew about Stiuso's whereabouts while he was in hiding. And that's not even getting into all the loose ends regarding the AMIA bombing and the alleged government cover-up afterward. Four months after Niesman's death in 2015, the courts threw out his nearly 300-page complaint against Fernandez, citing a lack of evidence. However, in 2016, after Stiuso gave his private testimony, the courts decided to reopen the case. To be clear, they didn't launch a new investigation. Instead, they re-examined the evidence Niesman had compiled. They also re-evaluated the circumstances of his death. And as we covered last week, this was when they ultimately ruled it a homicide. In 2017, Fernandez was indicted for treason related to covering up the 1994 AMIA bombing. Though unrelated to the murder case, it's worth noting that they are almost identical to the charges Alberto Nisman brought against her two years earlier. A court called for Fernandez's arrest, but even after her presidency ended, she's maintained political office, first as a senator and currently as vice president. As a result, she still has a form of legal immunity. She cannot be prosecuted. And... Those are the last major developments. Since 2016, Alberto Nisman's murder case has remained in legal limbo. Nobody has been charged with the murder, and officials haven't formally accused any new culprits in the AMIA attack. But there have been a few smaller developments. In 2020, an ex-Mossad agent named Uzi Shaya gave an interview on Israeli TV. He asserted that he'd personally provided Nisman with some of the information that implicated Hezbollah in the terrorist attack. Shia refrained from accusing anyone specific of Nisman's murder, but he did suggest that the prosecutor died because of the evidence he'd provided. Given the new information that has come to light in recent years, it's possible that someday soon, authorities will uncover a smoking gun that implicates Nisman's killer. However, even then, the general public may not accept whatever findings come to light. Unproven allegations about Nisman's murder are now an ingrained part of Argentinian culture. Portland State University researchers Leopoldo Rodriguez and Sean Smallman laid out the cultural factors in a paper titled Political Polarization and Nisman's Death, Competing Conspiracy Theories in Argentina. According to Rodriguez and Smallman, 
it's natural for people to turn to conspiracy theories to feel some sense of control during times of personal and political turmoil. If you believe some shadowy organization is pulling the strings behind the scenes, that can make tragedies feel less random. And Niesman's death came on the heels of massive nationwide chaos. The late 90s and early 2000s brought a severe economic recession and deepened political divides in Argentina. And a unique quirk of Argentina's criminal justice system may have helped the conspiracy theories spread. When police examine a crime scene, it's standard practice for them to bring unrelated civilians on site to serve as unbiased witnesses. In theory, this keeps checks and balances on investigators. It's harder for a corrupt cop to plant evidence or falsify reports if they're being watched. In Niesman's case, a waitress and a carpenter watched the officials gather evidence and then told the press that the police hadn't conducted a proper investigation. Unfortunately, it's hard to evaluate those claims, as the details of their allegations weren't widely covered by the English-speaking media. Those aren't the only alarming inconsistencies. According to a locksmith who let Niesman's mother into his apartment, the prosecutor's door was unlocked the evening he died. But Niesman's mother has disputed those claims. Ultimately, there are too many competing narratives to know which is true or who to believe. It's no wonder conspiracy theories got so much traction. And we can't ignore the importance of the Amia bombing in all of this. Like we mentioned before, this was the deadliest terrorist attack in Latin American history. And it's normal for people to try to explain disasters away with conspiracy theories. Look at how many alternative narratives there are about September 11th or the Kennedy assassination. But there's one big difference. With both JFK and the World Trade Center, there's an official story that implicates a specific suspect. The Argentinian people didn't even get that. Even though the evidence suggested Hezbollah was involved, the government never pressed charges or convicted any culprits for the tragedy. So if the public wanted closure about the bombing, they had to turn to unverified speculation and conspiracy theories. On top of that, Rodriguez and Smallman noted that President Fernandez was a highly divisive political leader. Most citizens either adored her or despised her. Few were in between. Generally speaking, people tend to gravitate toward conspiracy theories that fit with their pre-existing beliefs, which means those who disliked Fernandez were more willing to believe her administration ordered the hit on Eastman, and those who supported her tended to suspect she'd been framed. In other words, Alberto Nisman's murder became a lightning rod in Argentina's culture wars. People could build an entire political identity around their personal take on his homicide. Even intelligence personnel and elected officials publicly endorsed various conspiracy theories, establishing their alliance with a particular platform or party in the process. Unfortunately, that means this mystery will probably never be solved. The problem isn't a lack of evidence. It's the fact that nobody can be trusted. Every person who weighs in on the case, whether they're a journalist, a police officer, or a government official, has an agenda. And right or wrong, 
Every person has their opinion about what constitutes truth. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Alberto Niesman, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Netflix six-part documentary series titled Niesman, The Prosecutor, The President, and The Spy, along with The New Yorker's 2015 article, Death of a Prosecutor, extremely helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next Thursday. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by S. Christina Rowe, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>